Hi, welcome to Don't Ask Me About the Weather. I'm your host, Jen. I'm really qualified to be hosting a podcast, I can assure you. I'm very socially adjusted, very bubbly. I've been told I have only child vibes by uh, my guest here today, Cody Gordon. And I unfortunately will not be taking that back still, Jen. <laughs> it keeps me up at night, Cody, but we can move on from it. Cody is my home for Chicago. We were dance partners for, I think, like four months, right, Cody? And even after I left Chicago, we started to be friends, to get to chat, hang out, and now podcast together. He is no first-timer to podcast. He was a guest on one called The Chartographers. And if Taryn, Evan, if you have a chance to listen to this, I love both of you. And I find all of your episodes on The Chartographers so delightful. So if you finish listening to Don't Ask Me About the Weather, you should go listen to The Chartographers after this for a palate cleanser. And a less, <laughs> and a, and a lighter, and a, and a very much lighter <laughs> discussion topic. <laughs> Yeah, last time Cody and the chartographers talked about Childish Gambino and his breadth and depth of just excellent work, but that is not what we're talking about today. Oh, no, no, this is all you. Today, the topic of this podcast is called Defining Yourself, that kind of privilege, the option, the ability to define who you are, what you value. And I really like to match the topic with the person. Um, so when I started thinking about this, I thought that Cody would be that perfect person to discuss it with because we have brushed over this topic in the past. So hopefully we will get kind of more in depth this time. How it originated for me was both on a personal level and then it came up in a work setting, I suppose. Something that I identified as a value of mine when I was in therapy and trying to figure out what I value. And it also just came up in work when we were talking about this sociologist called Patricia Hill Collins. She wrote a book called Black Feminist Thought about different power dynamics in societies and workplaces with collections of people. And she talked about the goal of oppressed groups. And these goals of oppressed groups is to achieve four things, is to achieve self-determination, self-definition, autonomy, and agency. And what I gathered from it was basically the goal is to do the ability to define who you are and the autonomy to make your own decisions and the ability to make your own decisions. Because I'd already identified that as a value, it was kind of cool to see that connection and connect it back to this work by Patricia Hill Collins. And I thought, you know, it must be a theme, right? It must be something other people think about and other people experience. So that's really why we are here today. Yeah. And if you're sitting here listening and wondering to yourself, if you've never asked yourself those questions, then like you said, like picking up one of Patricia Collins books will open your mind to so many new things. Truly unbelievable. As someone who has not read it, I need to go pick it up and read something because from everything that you've explained and what we've honestly discussed, Jen, a lot of what she she talks about, you know, amplifying yourself and your autonomy through your acts and how you live, you know, is something that I never really think, I, I never think about. And I don't think a lot of other people think about. And the framework that she provides really brings to light a lot of things that I never really <laughs> consciously observe. You know, I was raised as a single parent or a single kid, <laughs> 
Not that I know of a single parent yet. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> but no, I was raised as a single as a single child by a only father, only black father. And man, I don't like because of that, that already puts me in a statistic, you know, like right off the bat. And because of that, my father working to support, you know, me like 24-7. I never really had much of an ability to learn about what it meant to be Black in America. And so I assimilated wherever I could. And I think that really fed into the be seen but not seen mentality, you know, which never really gave me an, an ability to define myself, you know, it never gave me a safe place to define myself. So Unfortunately, what you see with a lot of Black youths and even myself, you don't really start defining yourself until you're 19 or 20 years old. Um, and it was it was tough because when you do start to define yourself, it's a zero to 100 process. You start like, I, I mean, I'm not even going to lie. I truly believed race, racism didn't exist all the way up until I was like maybe 19 or 20. Like even when someone would say, you know, hard art to me in front of me, I'd be like, well, that's funny like he doesn't you know that's dead like that that has no meaning anymore you know I would think that and then you get to a point where those things do start to impact you and affect you and they start to make you feel specific ways and they start to cut away at your like I think mean, that's that's the key here. it starts to cut away at your autonomy and when you start to realize that that's when you start to notice and that's when you start to define yourself and the decisions that you make to protect yourself or help amplify your voice with other people so in a way, like I feel like I've truly only had like the last seven years to help define myself. And I feel like I'm even still going further, you know? So, and you know, joining podcasts or being invited on the podcast like this, which is a huge honor, is helping me even more. So, thanks. I like that accent. But I also really identify with that, which I'm a little bit surprised by. So I feel like another theme among Asian Americans and my own experience is that for so long, you kind of try to erase your culture and you try to assimilate really, really well into American cultures. Mm -hmm. Everybody has felt some form of like the paper bag experience where you like stop bringing your culture's food to school. You take on mm -hmm. American name. And so it's really only been in like the last year or maybe two years that this has been come like a priority of me to understand my culture understand my parents a little bit better and what you said about only when you start to see that are you able to define yourself I think really at least rings true for me that I don't think I would become like a whole person if I didn't kind of start to reckon with the racism that I've experienced because I had this like really odd conversation at work once when my boss out of the blue said asked me point blank how has racism affected your life and i was like uh <laughs> it's like loading a barrel of tnt into a a very like you know loading six barrels of tnt into a giant cannon and just like pulling the string like yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna explode like i i can't like that you can't just like shove that at me and then expect like an answer that's a whole that's a diatribe that's like hours of conversation it's almost insulting to ask that question and it's like, yeah, give me a three, give me a three bullet answer as to how racism is. It's, it's not, you can't put it into three bullets. That's like a, a biography. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. 
Um, but I responded, and uh, I don't think it has. And it was only through reading this like passage in Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong that I realized that in itself, not being able to like put a name to the racism or like identify it, is part of almost the racism that we've experienced. And so that's not something mm-hmm. that I have very much clarity in right now. But I'm kind of surprised to hear a similar thing come from you because it seems to me that your group. Is much more in touch with that racism, even from a young age. And I saw that you actually to play into that. You actually have a segment from one of Collins's, and I'm just going to cite it here. And you said discriminatory practices of everyday lived experiences add to that routine, which helps to go typically go unnoticed and remain unidentified. Mm. So when you go through that day in day out as a as a child, like in those most formative years as a child, you know it's it's going to take some time to unravel that when you get older. When my when my frontal, for me at twenty seven, <laughs> I guess when my when my frontal cortex is finally done developing. So, <laughs> damn biology. Um, and I also, you know, to ask, I have I also have an Asian American friend who's also Chinese, and her name's, you know, forgive me if this is crossing lines, Shauna, but her name is Shauna, and I just recently learned that her name is her Chinese name is Ji Jin, and I've want to call I like and I feel so weird because I want to call her by her name Jijin but it's that sounds so off limits and I don't know why had she expressed that she would like to be called that no I also kind I've never called her Jijin but I did ask her I was like so what's your Chinese name and she was like oh Jijin I was like okay but I've never called her that and she's never requested to be called by that so mm-hmm. But I'm just, as as an outsider looking in, I, I don't fully understand the American name versus Chinese name idea and why it feels so off limits to call like someone by their their name versus like their American name. Oh, so many. I mean, I have my own experience to talk about. Um, I mean, growing up and when you like come here and then you're going by your Asian Chinese name and people like can't pronounce it, people are making fun of it. It's a really like hard thing to grapple with as a kid. And so the idea of adopting the American name is really attractive. It could be you choosing that. It could be your parents choosing that for you. But whatever it is, it's this cry to assimilate, right? And I remember like going through that process and it being so anxiety inducing when I was making that transition between my Chinese name and my, and my American name. Because I'd ha- like constantly have to correct people. And like at that point, nobody else was changing their name, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, I was in the third grade. You felt like the only person asking for that. And what I have come to terms with lately is, in this case, unless she requested you to call her that, I think everybody should respect how that person feels about their Chinese or American name, whether or not they want to go with either, whether or not they want to stick with their American, revert back to their Chinese. And I think I just want to express that like neither of those is wrong. Not to you, like I'm not telling that to you specifically, but whatever they choose, like neither of them is wrong. It's just what Mm -hmm. um, their unique experiences and like what they feel is right for them. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably where I get the uncomfortable feeling from. You know, like, as if I were to call her Zizhen, that would be like a sign of disrespect because like, one, she didn't give me like permission to call her that, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And two, like you said, that's that's a that's her choice. And if I like try to take that away from her, that's you know that's like who am I to take that away from her? So that's I think that's yeah. where the disrespect and then uneasy feeling comes from. I mean, connect connecting that back to the idea of taking away that choice for her. And I know, mm-hmm. like, I've heard other people express, oh, it's kind of sad that you guys leave your native name for an American name. And to me, I think you don't get to pass that judgment on if it's sad or not mm-hmm. and make us feel shameful for going by an American name because you don't know mm-hmm. what that experience is like. Yeah. Uh, preach, for sure. <laughs> preach. I, yeah, I understand. I understand it now. And as someone who didn't understand it, thank you for explaining that to me so i really appreciate you like hearing that mm-hmm. it's even therapeutic and cathartic for me to say it thank you that conversation that we had via text at like 2 a.m where somebody had passed judgment on my level of asianness oh you mm-hmm. do xyz like we both salsa dance that's at mm-hmm. least not super common among my group so you're not as Asian as me. Anyway, somebody had passed that judgment yeah. to me and that truly bothered me kind of to my very being. And, I, and I've and i come to realize that that was because they took away my ability to define myself and my ability to define like what being Asian means to me. And so I wonder whether or not you've had that same experience and what your reactions are to that. Yeah, Um so my experience is like rooted more in historical context as a, for me, I'm light skinned. So I have a white mother and a black father. And so historically speaking in like the 16th century, 15th century, like I would be considered mulatto and mulatto would have just a level above being black, you know? And so I would probably be either in a house or I would have an upper level I would just be a position just above people who are black and I think that has just carried on since then throughout culture and it has provided a a shit ton of resentment towards people who are light-skinned especially black people and I think it isn't until now that black people are realizing that you know light-skinned people are are treated you know the same as black people like we're no we're no different we don't get any different treatment now as we did you know back in in, in slavery and i think because of that it's it's bred some resentment of you're not truly black cody you know like you can't say the n-word cody because you're not black you're light-skinned when white people look at you they don't see black they see a eurocentric idea of beauty you know in some weird way because my hair doesn't you know maybe because my hair doesn't get as nappy as a black person's does or maybe because my lips aren't as big or my nose isn't as big i don't i don't know what it is whatever the 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 classic stereotypes that people may have about black people but i have felt alienated from both sides because of that because white people will still look at me for my skin color and treat me differently black people also look at me and accept me talk about taking away autonomy that that right there will do it <laughs> like you have no group so and then as a as a complete joke i always say this but like light skin people never get along with each other so <laughs> i'm slightly joking i have i've just had bad experiences with other light skin people 
I do have one light skin friend, Brianna. Yeah, I, I love hanging out with you, Brianna. I do. <laughs> and Ethan. <laughs> but sometimes we do not get along. <laughs> but yeah, autonomy is being stripped away from both sides can be can be tough. So because I'm at the end of the day, I'm not ticking that box on an employee sheet that says white. I'm not. Mm-hmm. So is that removal of the autonomy the main grapple you have with when people make those comments or is there something else that you feel is at the core of like why it's so damaging oh no that i would say that's at the core i mean i think we all want a sense of community and belonging and i wasn't able to find that and then i guess always constantly worrying about how you're looked at is just can be so exhausting sometimes I probably would even further venture to say at one point, I probably was ticking that box that said white right, as a young age. At one point, I probably thought I could I could click either one because my mom was like, my dad was like, I can pick whatever I want, I guess. <laughs> I can be whatever I want. Mm-hmm. But realizing you can be whatever you want and realizing what you want are, I guess, two different things. And I want it to, I want to identify as, african-american because i was raised by a black father and you know my family came from kentucky and then my my family's family came from louisiana and i'm sure my family's family's family came from you know the atlantic slave trade at some time at some point so yeah but that was a good good question the tough one (laughs) ready for one more tough question sure how would you define yourself if i just asked who is cody um, I would define myself as someone who is still a a work in progress that is still looking for the next, you know, life to amplify or help grow. Um, I would define myself as eager to, to keep living and seeing what's in store for me and, and my friends around me as we all grow and how I can support them. And really, you know, at one point I thought I had run out of love to give, but I think through my 20s, this year is the big 30, uh, <laughs> through, my, through my 20s, I think I've, I thought I had kind of run into compassion fatigue, but now I find myself filled with more compassion than ever and wanting to share it with as, with as many people as possible and not just myself. So... A new breath of life. I would say I am defining myself as a new breath of life in the world right now. Well, that's so beautiful. I love hearing that. It's kind of like who you are, but really you in italics. And personally, I just love making up terms. So um, I'm going to call this episode you in italics. Thank you, Cody. Really all I can say here. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Jen. Thanks, Cody. It has been a true pleasure to have you. And until next time, this is your host, Jen, from Don't Ask Me About the Weather, learning how to be your italic self.